Welcome to Future of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. I'm Federica Cherubini, the Head of Leadership Development at the Institute. As the second wave hits many countries, it is a good moment to pause and reflect on the challenges the pandemic has posed for governments and news organizations around the world. How informed are our audiences about COVID-19? What do they think about our work? And which people are the most vulnerable to misinformation about the disease? These are some of the questions we explore in communications in the coronavirus crisis, lesson for our second wave, a new report funded by the Nafil Foundation that we published this week. Our guests today are Rasmus Nielsen and Richard Fletcher, two of the authors of this report. Rasmus is the director of the Reuters Institute and a professor of political communication at the University of Oxford. And Richard is a senior research fellow at the Institute and the leader of our research team. Rasmus, Richard, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Rasmus, the report focuses on the UK, where infections are growing and the second wave is now well underway. But the situation is getting worse in many other countries, and I guess some of its takeaways may be useful for journalists and policymakers elsewhere. So what are the key findings of the report? I think we should start with the encouraging news here, which is that our work suggests that the majority of the UK public are informed, uh, they're cautious, and they say that they're willing to take additional preventive measures uh, to protect themselves and their loved ones from COVID-19. Um, and many of them are also paying attention to the news, and some of them uh, also say that they trust the information they get about COVID-19 from news organizations. But it's also clear that our work identifies some very real challenges, and I think we are at sort of quite a fragile moment uh, in the UK in terms of the communications around the, uh, the, the crisis when we look ahead to the second wave in the winter ahead, and perhaps this will resonate with other countries too. We find, I would say, sort of two challenges in particular. The first one is that the sort of veining away of the rally around the news that we saw early in the crisis where news consumption surged and, and trust in the news was relatively high, it's really fading away. And, and, and with that fade, we see not just um, less news consumption, less trust in news and increase in news avoidance, but also particularly growing information inequality. Uh, we document this uh, around age. Uh, older people follow the news more closely than younger people. We documented around gender, uh, men uh, say they follow news more closely around COVID than women do. And we find it also around classic indicators of social class, like uh, income and level of education. Now, our survey data don't allow us to really interrogate this, um, but I would suggest that the, it's very probable that there will be similar inequality around ethnicity, for example, uh, in the UK and other countries. And of course, all of these are examples of how structural inequalities um, that we know from other parts of society are also present in how people use uh, news and navigate a crisis like this. Um, and then finally, we find, and I think this is perhaps the, the, the most sort of um, original, if you will, contribution here beyond what we've done in the reports uh, so far, is that there is a growing minority of people in the UK um, who are using very little news uh, around the coronavirus crisis and also express very, very low levels of trust in news organizations um, around the information they provide on the coronavirus. And this is the group that we think are potentially more vulnerable than the population at large 
of being at best less informed about the crisis and about the virus, and at worst uh, to be uninformed or even misinformed about the crisis that we face and what different institutions are trying to do to address it. Thank you. Um, this piece of research is the last installment from the UK COVID-19 News and Information Project, an initiative itself funded by the Nuffield Foundation. And as part of the project, you've collected data on how people navigate news and information during the coronavirus pandemic in the UK throughout different months. Richard, what did you learn throughout this month? Well, first, just to say a little bit more about what we did. Uh, starting in uh, mid-April, uh, we uh, have done uh, fortnightly online surveys working with YouGov. Uh, and we've completed 10 of those, which takes us up to the middle of August. And importantly, we did this with the same uh, people each time, or as many as we, we could get to, uh, to do the surveys. Uh, and we asked a range of different questions, not only about how people uh, were getting news about coronavirus, but also how they uh, felt about it, whether they trusted it, and so on. And because communications are, are part of the official response. Uh, we also asked people about how they thought the situation uh, was unfolding and whether institutions uh, were responding uh, in a good way or in a bad way. And I think the three sort of main findings from my point of view that stood out, uh, in addition to what we've uh, written about in the, in the latest report, is firstly the surprisingly high levels of, of news use around coronavirus and also positive attitudes towards the news when we first started uh, the research uh, in April. I think it was clear at that point that people were perhaps approaching coronavirus news slightly differently to how they would approach uh, news more generally uh, at, at other times. Then, uh, as Rasmus has already mentioned, uh, quite a sharp decrease uh, over the summer in not only in news use, but also in sort of people's positive attitudes to, towards the news as, in a sense, coronavirus um, the crisis became less acute. And I think for many people, it became another story uh, amongst many. And, and finally, one thing that we haven't really sort of mentioned in this report, but something we looked at uh, near the beginning uh, of the research was to do with political polarization. So it was clear right from the beginning that uh, politics was affecting how people uh, understood the crisis and how they behaved uh, during it. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, Rasmus, you uh, alluded before of a, of a more vulnerable group and, and in the report um, you define this as infodemically vulnerable. As this is a complex phrase, I want to make sure our listener follow us. So when you talk about infodemically vulnerable, what do you mean and, and why we should pay attention to it? Okay, so really what we wanted to do is to draw inspiration here uh, from the way in which in public health research um, researchers and practitioners speak uh, about the issue of being epidemiologically vulnerable. So these are individuals who are not necessarily ill or, or even necessarily going to fall ill in a situation, but are more at risk uh, than others of falling ill, often because of um, structural inequalities, uh, poverty, uh, lack of access to resources or institutions that they can count on. And really, we took this notion of the epidemiologically vulnerable and then worked off of the notion of an infodemic that has been launched by the World Health Organization and Dr. Tedros and others. This idea that part and parcel of the coronavirus crisis um, is not just the virus spreading, but also a situation of information overload. Some of that information is trustworthy, some of it is ambiguous, some of it is misinformation. And in this situation, we wanted to understand better 
Well, we know that there is misinformation out there. We also know that there is information out there that people can in fact rely on. But who might be more uh, exposed, if you will, more at risk in the infodemic, not necessarily misinformed, but potentially more vulnerable to becoming misinformed. And the way we went about um, uh, practically trying to estimate the size of this group is to really start just from the first the observation that we know from a lot of research more broadly that um, paying attention to news from independent news media with professional journalists is associated with knowing more about uh, politics, about public affairs and the like. And more specifically, during the coronavirus crisis, we found in our own early research a similar relationship of paying attention to news from news organizations being significantly associated with people being more informed about the virus. So the first, if you will, component of how we define and measure this group of infodemically vulnerable is whether people pay attention to the news. Now, the second part of it is whether they trust the news. And I think this is of sort of separate importance in that, um, as Richard said, there has been this sort of the ebb in news consumption um, as the crisis was sort of complemented with other stories that people were paying attention to. And you could say that, 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 that people simply not paying attention to the news is not in itself a sign that they're vulnerable to misinformation or to being less informed because they can just start paying attention. After all, you know, they have access to the information. The group that we define as vulnerable are those who are both not paying attention and thus likely to be less uh, well-informed about the crisis and also who say they don't trust the news. So that even if they wanted to find out, they would be less likely to seek out news organizations because they don't trust them and they would be less likely also to act on the information even if they came across it from news organizations. So that's the way that we have defined uh, the group of the infodemically vulnerable. And in the UK, um, by this uh, definition, we estimate that the group has grown from about 6% of, um, of the population early on in the crisis to about 15% uh, come late August. And, and what can journalists and policymakers do to reach this elusive audience, Rasmus? I mean, I think there are really sort of three sides to this, right? One is um, about the news that, that is offered to people, if you will. And I, I think there are many good reasons for why we have a, an abundance of news that's focused on the political process around the coronavirus crisis. Very, very good reasons to look at that. Uh, this is an inherently political crisis in many ways and the very real political questions and how we respond as a society. Um, but we need to recognize that a lot of people aren't that interested in politics and can be a bit turned off by the uh, emphasis and attention paid to politicians that they often don't hold in high regard. And similarly, I, I think it, there's also clear there's a case uh, for some really important journalism that is sort of highly specialized, if you will, sort of data journalism, very intricate uh, examinations of the epidemiology and the science behind uh, the response to the coronavirus crisis. And that's all very interesting, and I read that all the time myself, but I think also we need to recognize, again, for a lot of people, news is, is most interesting and, and appealing when it's a useful guide to everyday life uh, and can help people make sort of clear decisions about things they immediately need to contend with in their own lives. So not about the sort of what's going to happen six months from now in country X, but more what am I going to do tomorrow to protect myself and my family. And in that sense, um, I think there is a case here for perhaps seeking to think about whether the balance between essentially sort of politicians and pundits versus doctors and nurses in the coverage is right. It seems that a lot of the public are not uh, actually finding that the news that they have access to is helping explain to them what they can do to respond to the pandemic. Um, and I think if one could 
um, make sure that the, the journalism that is done, that really does, that gets in front of people, they might think more highly of it. And perhaps sometimes there is also a case for rebalancing further towards news that people can actually really use to navigate their, their daily lives. Um, then I think there is sort of secondly a point about where might one um, reach people. And here I think it's clear that some of this is about news media. Uh, in the UK, we have um, public service like the BBC, which has a responsibility to serve all audiences. And it's perhaps particularly important in a situation like this, the BBC really thinks about reaching not just people like me who are well served by many different elite media that you know makes a business off of serving my needs, but also people who are not paying for news, who are not going to upmarket uh, and elite news sources. Um, and similarly, of course, in the private sector, I think it's particularly important to think about the role that popular newspapers and popular websites, um, whether legacy titles or, or new entrants, can play in really making sure that a wider public than just the upmarket sort of more affluent elite is informed um, about the, the crisis and find information that appeals to them on, the, on their terms. Some of this might also be about the platforms. Um, we find that the infodemically vulnerable, for example, use social media quite a lot. Um, perhaps this is a channel through which uh, news and information can, can, can reach people in ways that they find more uh, engaging or that they come across incidentally while doing other things uh, on the platforms. Now, there I think we need to be very careful and recognize that while the platforms, whether social media like Facebook um, or Twitter or video sharing sites like YouTube or search engines and messaging applications and the like, have been very widely used throughout the crisis, People express very low levels of trust in the information that they find uh, on social media about COVID. Um, similarly, with video sites and messaging applications, there's a very real trust gap between the information that people find about COVID on these platforms and then other sources that they might rely on. So the platforms may be a way to get the information in front of people, but it's really important to remember that most people are highly, highly skeptical of the information that they encounter in these environments. So perhaps an opportunity to reach them but also, I think, some complexity in terms of whether one can actually sort of get through and whether people will uh, give any credence to things that they find in these environments. Thank you. And Richard, looking at, a, at the positive aspect too, um, yet the research shows that most people are relatively well informed about COVID. Um, how do we know this? Well, one of the key things we wanted to understand uh, right from the beginning of the project was, was simply how much people knew about coronavirus uh, and the uh, the epidemic more broadly. Um, and in order to measure this, we, we took an approach uh, from uh, political science, which looks at measuring political knowledge. And this is simply done by asking people uh, a series of multiple choice questions and then looking at how many answers people uh, get right. Um, now, this was a little more challenging with coronavirus because particularly at the beginning of the project sort of hard facts about the the virus were still were still emerging uh, but we thought we could take information from authoritative sources in the UK and, and and globally and come up with a series of eight multiple choice questions and that's what we did so we tried to focus on uh, questions that were really about what people need to know in order to stay safe uh, from the virus but also some questions about uh, the sort of broader context and current affairs surrounding uh, coronavirus. So to give you a couple of examples, we asked people uh, for how long the NHS is advising people to, to wash their hands, the correct answer being uh, 20 seconds. And we also asked people whether they could identify Sweden as the country in Europe that's had the, the least strict uh, lockdown. 
Um, and I think when we looked at the results, perhaps the easiest way of summing them up is that most people get most of these questions right. So over half of people get five or more uh, questions right. And that's something we consistently found uh, throughout uh, the project. Now, you know, looking at that on its own and saying that people know a lot about coronavirus is, is perhaps not straightforward. But I think one way of thinking about it is when uh, people are designing these kind of questions to tap people's uh, political knowledge, it can often be difficult to come up with a list of questions that people have a realistic chance of actually getting right. And I think it was almost the opposite situation when we were uh, designing questions around coronavirus. It was difficult to come up with questions, uh, as it turned out, that people um, could reasonably expect it to know the right answer to uh, and, 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 and sort of get them right. So I think that we, we interpreted this as quite high levels of knowledge. And I think on top of this, and this is something we described in the report, is that it was clear that people tended to give quite cautious uh, answers to questions that, it, although they might be incorrect, would be unlikely to leave them worse off. So in the example about uh, how long people should wash their, their hands for, uh, the proportion of people who selected uh, an option that was greater than 20 seconds uh, was larger than the proportion of people who selected an option that was lower than 20 seconds. So even when people were, were wrong, they were, they were erring on the side of caution. Thank you. Um, the UK has hit, been hit harder than other developed economies with disadvantaged communities especially affected. As Rasmus mentioned at the beginning, information inequality is a real problem in this particular context. Richard, has this kind of inequality grown in the UK over the pandemic? I mean, our, our evidence seems to seems to suggest that it has. Uh, and what we really mean by that is we've seen sizable differences between uh, groups in terms of how much or how frequently they access news about coronavirus. So if we take age as an example, uh, at the beginning uh, of the project uh, in mid-April, we saw that 86% of those aged uh, 55 and over were accessing coronavirus news at least once a day. Uh, and compare that to 74% of under 55s who, who said the same. So that was a gap of 12 percentage points. Uh, by the time we got to August and the, and the 10th wave of the survey, that, that gap had doubled to 23 percentage points as the younger age group uh, had, had stopped consuming coronavirus news at a, at a faster rate. Um, that's one example. Uh, another uh, is to do with gender. So again, in April, when we looked at the, the differences in coronavirus news consumption between men and women, we saw no gap at all uh, in April. Uh, but by August, a small gap uh, had emerged, not a, not a gap the same size as with age, but a, a significant gap nonetheless. If we look at something like education and compare the proportion of people who with a university degree and those without a university degree and look at their news consumption, we saw a gap at the beginning of the crisis uh, that rough, stayed roughly this about 10 percentage point gap uh, that, that existed throughout, throughout the coronavirus crisis. So it didn't grow any larger, uh, but didn't get any smaller either. And I think the reason this is important, I mean, many of these are, are kind of long-standing inequalities in news use. There, are, there have always been certain groups that consume uh, more news uh, than others, and, and these patterns largely reflect that. But I think we might worry about it particularly uh, during coronavirus, because I think the most effective response will be the one where everyone knows what they need to know uh, in order to stay safe. And this 
we know from other researches, um, news has a, has a key part to play in, in informing people about how they behave. So I think inequalities in news use are, are a cause for particular concern during a situation uh, like coronavirus. Thank you. Talking about responses, all the figures we've discussed so far come from the UK, but journalists and policymakers in other countries, um, as we mentioned before, will face similar problems in the next few months. Rasmus, is there any lesson on the communication uh, on the coronavirus communication crisis that may be helpful for uh, for them? I mean, we we hope that 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 some cautious lessons can be extrapolated from this work that's relevant for other people elsewhere. Um, some of these things are aligned with what we found in comparative research we did earlier in the crisis, where we looked at six countries, including, uh, you know, Argentina, South Korea, Germany, uh, the U.S., um, uh, as, as, as well as the U.K., where we found some of these things, too, sort of relatively high levels of, inform of, of information in the public, uh, you know, reliance on news, positive association between relying on news and being informed. So some of these things, I think, are sort of have... Um, uh, parallels that we're, with what we're expecting to see elsewhere. And, 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 and that also means, of course, that some of the problems we've identified here are challenges in the UK around information inequality and this reality of some people being potentially more vulnerable to being uh, at best less informed and at worst uh, ill-informed or, or misinformed even are also very relevant elsewhere. Now, it's also clear, of course, that there are some things which you should expect to be different um, and I think one useful way to think about that is the point that Richard made earlier about the importance of thinking about the intersection between politics and the media in, an, in a situation like this. Um, and that gives us sort of a handle on, on, on some things we might expect to be more similar or more different relative to the UK. So, for example, um, in our research, we found uh, that there was a, an early sort of high level of trust in the UK government, followed by a sharp decline and then uh, a stability at a low level in terms of trust in, in, in COVID information from the UK government. More broadly, polling suggests that confidence in, for example, the French government uh, has evolved relatively similarly to trust in the UK government. So high trust early on, sharp decline and then stability at a low level. But that's not a universal pattern. Uh, there are other countries like Germany or, for example, my native Denmark, where trust has been high and very stable uh, throughout most of the crisis, according to, to polling done by UCOV. And similarly, of course, there are other countries, too, where, uh, like the US and Spain, where there was low trust from the outset and has been stability at a low level. So I think this gives us some indications of some of the differences we might expect to see around the world, often tied in in part with this question of how sort of polarizing the coronavirus crisis uh, has become in terms of politics and how explicit this agreement has become around this and how much people read the response of their government but also other institutions like the news media through politics. Uh, the UK and France have seen sort of initial rallies and then high polarization. Germany and Denmark much lower levels of polarization throughout and much higher levels of trust and then countries like the US and Spain have been polarized throughout from the outset and low trust throughout. And I think this gives us some indications of how things may work in the media as well, with variations from country to country. It is going to be a difficult winter in many countries with more infections, more restrictions, and potentially a huge impact on people's mental health and on too. As a final thought, Rasmus, what would be your advice to journalists in the field? How should they adapt their reporting to the findings we've just discussed? I want to say first that, that this has been a tremendous challenge for journalists as it has for, for citizens and, and societies worldwide. And I have tremendous respect for, for reporters 
who have tried to make sense of an unprecedented crisis under really, really challenging circumstances. Um, and I, I don't think there is anything in our research that, that could reasonably give anyone reason to blame individual journalists from the work that they're doing or for, for the fact that not all of the public is as impressed with their work as I often am. Um, that said, I think it's clear that, that there are things that editors and, and journalists can think about whether they want to do differently if they want to make sure that not only people like me, who are sort of news lovers, high levels of education, who spend lots of time following news from lots of different sources, but also the wider public are well informed about the crisis and equipped to really protect themselves and their loved ones and to evaluate and, and judge the responses uh, of authorities and, and, and governments and, and uh, hold them to account for how they are responding to the crisis. And that, I would say, is to really think about whether the balance is right between elite journalism that sort of follows the intricacies of political decisions and the positions taken by different high-level high elected officials, as well as various spats uh, between pundits who interpret hypothetical scenarios very differently. All of this can be very fascinating and, and surely finds an audience. Some of that audience was also willing to pay for news. But at the end of the day, um, there is a wider public out there who are not going to read all these long reads uh, on politics um, and on pundits and who are more interested in what they should do now and tomorrow to protect themselves and um, whether there is real evidence that their government has fallen significantly short um, of its responsibilities in terms of protecting the public in this uh, situation, and if so, why. And if we want to ensure that that information is provided to people, I think we really need to think about making this as accessible as possible and as focused as possible on everyday issues that people confront in their own lives and perhaps giving more prominence to those sources um, that we know from our research have not suffered the decline of trust that the news media, and in particular the government, has suffered in the UK, namely scientists and, and health authorities like the NHS. So perhaps um, fewer politics, uh, politicians and pundits and more doctors and nurses might be a, a simple recommendation. Thank you very much. Rasmus Richard, many thanks for speaking to us. Our guests today were Rasmus Nielsen and Richard Fletcher, authors of our recent report, Communications in the Coronavirus Crisis, Lessons for the Second Wave. Co-authors of this report are Antonis Kalogeropoulos and Felix Simon. You can find the report on our website. Make sure to follow our podcast channel on Spotify and Apple Podcast so you don't miss the next episode. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. Thank you for listening to Future of Journalism. I'm Federica Cherubini and we will be back next week. <laughs>